0: Bibles is Psalm chapter, or Psalm 2, Psalm 2, and uh... read along with me as we look at this psalm, second psalm in the Psalter. Why do the nations rage and the peoples meditate on a vain thing? The kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers take counsel together against Yahweh and against his anointed, saying, let us tear their fetters apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord mocks them. Then he speaks to them in his anger. And terrifies them in his fury, saying, But as for me, I have installed my king upon Zion, my holy mountain. I will surely tell the decree of Yahweh. He said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will surely give the nations as your inheritance, and the ends of the earth as your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron, you shall shatter them like a potter's vessel. So now, O kings, show insight. Take warning, O judges of the earth. Serve Yahweh with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son, lest He become angry and you perish in the way. For His wrath may soon be kindled. How blessed are all who take refuge in Him. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, Such a great proclamation concerning your son and our Lord, Savior, Jesus Christ, his kingship, his authority. And this command to all peoples and all nations to repent, to submit to his authority, to give him glory, to cease striving, to be still and know that he is God. Lord, as we look at this psalm and these commands herein and and all the principles contained that would uh, bolster our faith, help us to understand it. Give us illumination. Give us insight. Guide my words so that you may be glorified. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. As we uh, started looking at um, the beginning of the psalms and over the next uh, few months, we'll go uh, from Psalm 1 to uh, Psalm 16, and uh, so tonight we're here in Psalm 2. Uh, last week, Psalm 1, and as I was introducing the Psalter in Psalm 1, I I commented on the fact that these two psalms um, stand as uh, gatekeepers or um, uh, sentries, so to speak, uh, to uh, guarding the entrance into the Psalter. That's how uh, many have uh, commented on these two Psalms. And there is a sense um, and good indicators that um, they may have been one Psalm. As we see uh, this uh, this literary device uh, that is used in Hebrew pro- poetry, often called an inclusio, which is, in a sense, uh, bookends um, to... Um, uh, uh, the poetry or the poem, where you have um, the same uh, phrase or the same sentence uh, stated that was stated in the beginning, that is also stated in the end, and we see this uh, first in in the beginning of uh, Psalm one in verse one: "How blessed is a man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked," and then at the end of Psalm two, we see how blessed are all who take refuge in Him. And there is a sense where uh, these Two psalms, though their um, their content is somewhat different, the subject is is very similar. Where uh, Psalm one kind of um, shows uh, two men or two different men or two ways or two paths, and, and it speaks to the individual, how the individual is um, to. Uh, approach God how he is to live his life uh, and and these warnings and also affirmations of blessing for those individuals who would submit to God and submit to his way and delight in his law and meditate upon him and follow him and then the warning to the wicked who refuse to do so And, and in like manner psalm 2 speaks uh to um peoples to nations to kings uh psalm one is is more on the individual level and psalm two is more on the corporate level um saying similar things um but we see a lot of warning here in psalm two um we see uh we see uh, ultimatum from god we see the sinfulness of man um and in here uh It's interesting uh, because we also see uh, different characters. This uh, psalm is is, uh, very symmetrical. It's very symmetrical in that it's divided up into uh, four stanzas of three verses each. And and yes, uh, the verse numbers were not added until about the 1500s. But nonetheless, um, it is divided up symmetrically into those four stanzas. And in those four stanzas, we, in a sense, see four scenes, four scenes of of what is happening uh, as um, the the narrator begins uh, to paint this picture. And uh, within each scene, we also see uh, a, a different character. So we see uh, four scenes, uh, four uh, characters, or even their voices, their speech. Um, and then, also, um, by way of uh, application, we will see uh, four lessons. So, we're going to look at, at this psalm in, in that manner in four main points, uh, four uh, scenes, each involving one main character, and, and each scene, in a sense, painting part of the picture of the course of human history. So, the first scene in which we will see is humanity's rebellion exposed. Humanity's rebellion exposed in verses one to three, as the psalmist says, why do the nations rage and the peoples meditate on a vain thing? The kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers take counsel together against Yahweh and against his anointed saying, let us tear their fetters apart and cast away their cords from us. We see the rebellion of the peoples, of nations, of um, people groups, and, and then even of kings and rulers who lead those nations and those people groups. We see the rebellion of mankind, humanity's rebellion exposed as, um, there's a sense where uh, uh, the narrator, the psalmist, is, is, is displaying what's happening on earth from the, the, the perspective of the peoples. We see this in 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 three ways. Their their humanity's their rebellion is exposed in three ways. And first, their irrational rage, and then their crazy counsel, and then their announcement of autonomy. In verse 1, it, the, the psalmist asks a question, this, this rhetorical question. And it's almost asked in such a way that it's, it's a surprise. It, it's, it's astounding to the psalmist. It, it, in a sense, makes no sense to the discerning observer. Why do the nations rage and the peoples meditate upon a vain thing? This is illogical. It's irrational. It makes no sense they're, they're meditating on something that is futile, and that is their rebellion, their rebellion against God, raging against God, uh, meditating on uh, autonomy, on doing their own thing, on rebelling against God's ways, His laws, His standards, and, and His being. It goes all the way back to the beginning, to the fall, to the, the, what happened in the, the heart and mind of, of, of Adam and Eve as they were tempted to uh, disobey God. And then from that point on, it just continues and the rebellion grows worse and worse and worse until we see uh, in uh, Genesis 6 and, and God says that um, their thoughts and the intentions of their heart are continually evil. As he ta- tells Noah about his plan to flood the earth. And we see the sinfulness of mankind. And it, it just grows and grows. To, and we see it again in the, the table of the nations in, in Genesis uh, 11. And the Tower of Babel. And we see it in our day and age. The nations are raging. Raging. The peoples, the people groups, the peoples all over the world, they're meditating on a, a vain thing in the laws they make, in their behaviors, in their cultures. Everything is contrary to God and his ways. They're, they're preoccupied with this futility of going against God, of going against the, the law that is written upon their heart, and it ultimately ends in, in self-destruction. It ends in self-destruction. It, it, they, they go against the creative order. They destroy themselves through idolatry, through substance abuse, through marital infidelity, through sexual sin, through um, all manner of sin, starting with rebelling against God himself. As, as many preachers have said before, um, in the beginning, God made man in his own likeness and image, and ever since then, man has been trying to return the favor, not only in his worship of idols, but in him in him doing his own thing, making himself God, uh, living according to his own ways. And the result of idolatry is it destroys man. It's interesting, uh, as we... Uh, Look at Psalm 2 and, and we read about the rebellion of mankind and, and if, um, if you're well versed in your Bible you, you should uh, probably think of uh, several passages but one passage which notably comes up in my mind is, is Romans chapter 1. And just the, the sinfulness of mankind and, and how God, in their sinfulness, in their idolatry, in a sense, gives them over to do what they want to do. And they end up destroying themselves. These irrational uh, decisions and intentions. We, we see that also in, in, in the nations, in their, their relationship to one another. How um, you look uh, around the world today or throughout human history and, and you see these irrational uh, alliances of nations and, and, and the things they promote. And they, in a sense, destroy themselves. And we see that, I mean, just as we, we spoke about Israel, you know, and, and modern day Israel. Um, and just how all of these nations around them are in alliance against them and throughout their history that was the case ever, ever since uh, Pharaoh uh, the nations have been against them and, and sometimes so much so that it doesn't even make sense and especially in, in our day and age it, it doesn't make sense why all these nations would, would gather around Israel except the fact that they hate God they hate God and, and there's uh, a few passages which, which talk about this sense of the nation's raging. One, one such is in Isaiah chapter 17. Is Isaiah in, in that, um, those uh, few chapters from about chapter 12 on to 20 or so, he, he talks about uh, the nation's And he's condemning the nations. And here in chapter 17, verse 12, he uh, he speaks and he says, Alas, the uproar of many peoples who roar like the roaring of the seas and the rumbling of nations who rumble on like the rumbling of mighty waters. The nations rumble on like the rumbling of many waters, but he will rebuke them. And they will flee far away and be pursued like chaff in the mountains before the wind or like whirling dust before a whirlwind. There's also a picture in Daniel as he gets his vision of the four beasts coming out of the waters and the waters are raging. And that, that's in a sense a picture of the world, that, that the world and all the nations are at, at, in turmoil. Um, against God and against one another and in the midst of that empires rise up and then empires uh, fall down. This is what's happening all throughout human history, this, this irrational rage of the nations as they go against God and against his plan throughout history and particularly against his people and against his anointed. Second, we see their crazy counsel. The kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers take counsel together against Yahweh and against his anointed. It's these these human kings and these human rulers are, are gathering together, they're grouping together to ally themselves together against their creator. And they're taking counsel in this fact how they can, in a sense, best do it. Whether they see it or not. And it's against uh, Yahweh, and as verse 2 says, and against his anointed. This term right here, anointed, Hebrew is Mashiach. Mashiach. Uh, Otherwise uh, translated Messiah. In in the Greek, it would be uh, Christos. Uh, That's where we get the term christening, anointing. They take their stand in their council. The rulers take counsel together against Yahweh and against Jesus, against the Christ, against the Messiah. Their rebellion is specifically pointed at God and against his Messiah. It's crazy. And we can see this in throughout human history in the opposition against Israel, but we we also see it in the opposition against the church and the opposition against uh, missionaries and in many countries where uh, they would allow almost any religion, but then when the missionaries come, then they, they say, no, but not you. And it was the same in the Greco-Roman world. You know, one of, one of the things that, uh, one of the main reasons why Christians were persecuted in the Greco-Roman world was because they preached the exclusivity of Jesus Christ. You know, the, the Romans, uh, it, it wasn't, they weren't against another religion. They, they were, in a sense, polytheists. They, they, were, uh, they were fine with all other religions. It's just the fact that, that when Christians came along and said, no, those are false religions. There's only one God and only one king, and his name is Jesus Christ, and you must bow the knee to him and worship him. And you say, no, we're not going to have that. There's also a sense, it's interesting. Sometimes we see, uh, we see things happening in the world and, and, and countries banning together to uh, promote immorality. And to spread immorality. And, and it's such, a, you know, sadly, even in our own nation. That in many of our, um, and, and I believe uh, President Obama was the first to do this, um, if I'm not mistaken. To promote the LGBTQ agenda through all our ambassadors and our embassies. And just to promote it. And, and then other nations to promote this agenda and other immorality. Why would they do that? And, and you know, along that same vein, what? Why would that whole group? Why would the the the? Why would they choose the rainbow flag? You, know, you think about that. There's there's so many other uh, designs that they could come up with, but it's spiritual warfare. It's rebellion, and, and even that whole. Uh, sexual sin that, that, that is in in those variations of sexual immorality at the at the heart of it, it's rebellion against God's design for man and woman that's what's really driving that that's why, that's why we have this gender um uh confusion or war going on in our culture and spreading throughout the whole um world and western civilization It's at the heart of it is rebellion against God and his design for man and woman, his design for the family. And the kings of the earth and the rulers, they take their counsel together to promote this and to promote almost anything that's against God and against his anointed and against his church and against his people. It's interesting that many um, parts of Um, psalm 2 are quoted again in the new testament and just this phrase against his anointed showing that it's particularly um, pointing to jesus christ and and the rebellion is directed against him and we see this uh an illustration of this in acts chapter 4 turn with me there to acts chapter 4 i want want you to see this um, played out how the rulers take counsel together Against the Lord and against His anointed, and 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 not only that, but here we get a a divine commentary. It's always nice to see the how the New Testament um, quotes the Old Testament and how the apostles um, interpret the the Old Testament because you know there's divine commentary. They rightly interpret it, and Peter um, after their released uh, because they're they're, um, Peter and John were gathered by the authorities after preaching about Jesus and so in verse 23 of chapter 4 it says this so when they were released they went to their own companions and reported all that the chief priests and the elders had said to them and when they heard this they lifted their voices to God with one accord and said O master it is you who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them Who by the Holy Spirit, through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said, Why did the Gentiles rage, and the peoples devise vain things? The kings of the earth took their stand, and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his Christ. For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your purpose predestined to occur. And now, Lord, take note of their threats and grant that your slaves may speak your word with all confidence while you extend your hand to heal and signs and wonders happen through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. Peter is quoting Psalm 2. And he's showing how uh, in the, the crucifixion, the, the, in the fall, false trial of Jesus, we have these different ruling parties that come together and they ally together. We, 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 and we even read in the Gospels that, that Herod and Pilate were enemies until that point in which Jesus is brought before Herod. And it says that on that day they became friends. And even the, 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 the ruling Jews and the, the Romans, they were, they were at odds with one another. All the rulers in that place, in Israel at that time, um, they were at odds with one another until the point came to crucify Jesus Christ, the Lord's anointed, to uh, put him to death. And then all of a sudden they became friends. It just goes back to show the truth of that saying, the enemy of my enemy is my friend. This is proving the truth of Psalm 2 in their crazy counsel, and their irrational rage, their rebellion is exposed. But third, we we see their announcement of autonomy. That's really what's at the heart of of mankind's rebellion is, is mankind wants to be God. Mankind wants to be autonomous. As the psalmist says, as David says in verse 3 of Psalm 2, let us tear their fetters apart and cast away their cords from us. The, the fetters are, are handcuffs or chains, uh, cords, uh, binding them together, holding them down, or, or, or so they, they think that, that God's law that's written upon every human heart and that is expressed in His word and proclaimed through His people is, is holding them down, it's oppressing them. We hear that term, oppression. Uh, you know, the feminists like that term, oppression. Uh, and, and they speak about the patriarchy and the traditional family that they're being oppressed by. And it's, it's really against God. They want to be autonomous. They want to make their own rules and do whatever they please. It reminds me of, uh, there was a certain tract and um, it was also uh, kind of uh, circulating around social media um, from a certain—I uh, forget which—ministry, um, but uh, an evangelistic ministry. And there's a man who's frustrated. There's this this fence, this fence, and and he's like he's like I'm sick of this these fences just just trapping me in. And he goes to jump over the fence. And he jumps over the fence, and there's another man that says that's not a fence. That's a guardrail, and on the other side is a cliff falling off. And and he's falling down the cliff. And, and that's, in a sense, showing the heart of mankind. That mankind feels trapped by God's laws and he feels oppressed. But those laws are for our good. They're for our good because God is always good. Dr. Will Varner, in his commentary, he says this concerning um, verses 1 to 3. He says, the Lord hears the scoffers. God hears the ravings of the nations and the plots of their rulers. What is it that they really want? Freedom from God. But the way to real freedom is by submission, not by rebellion. To throw off God's will is to invite bondage and destruction. And that's what mankind does. In his rebellion against God, he destroys himself. And so the First lesson we learn from this scene in humanity's rebellion being exposed, the first lesson we are to learn, and most of us know already, is we learn what is wrong with the world. This is what is really wrong with the world. The world is broken, and the Bible tells us that, and it's broken because of mankind's sin because of his rebellion against God. This is what's wrong with the world. It can all be everything wrong in the world can be traced back to man's rebellion that's the first scene. In the second scene, we see uh, the Lord's response expressed. The Lord's response expressed. His response to man's rebellion and his rage and his, uh, his desire for autonomy. Verse 4. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord mocks them. Then he speaks to them in his anger and terrifies them in his fury, saying, but as for me, I have installed my king upon Zion, my holy mountain. His response is, is noted in, in, in three, three um, aspects or three ways. First, his mockery, then his fury, and then his decree, his mockery. He sees mankind and he's, he, he laughs. He laughs, and, and take note that it says, "He who sits in the heavens laughs." He, he doesn't even get up off his throne. And and yes, God is a spirit. This is a what we call an anthropomorphism. It, it's it's a, a human characteristic given to God, so so we could in a sense um, uh, grasp what is happening. God Himself uh, giving that, um, showing speaking through David, showing that. He, he's seated as he's laughing. He doesn't even get up. He doesn't bend over. He's not wringing his hands. He just, huh, really, really? It, it, it's interesting. It, it makes me think of, um, I don't know if you, you've ever done this, but, um, you know, boys do this um, a lot with bugs. And you, you see a bunch of bugs and, and, oh, or an anthill, And then, you know, you might pour something down there, like, you know, um, you know, water, if you're particularly mean, you might um, do something like gas and light it on fire or, or just something or poke it with a stick or whatever. And, and it's like all of a sudden, all these ants are just crawling all over and you're like, whoa, they're really mad down there. Whoa. But they can't do anything to you. And you're just like kind of almost laughing at them. Um, now, that, that's from, you know, a boyish, you know, uh, rebellious perspective. But nonetheless, there, there's something similar here. And God seated high in the heavens looking down and it's like, oh, they're, they're pretty mad. <laughs> that's kind of funny. <laughs> and, and they're in all their rage against their creator. And he, he's laughing at them. He's mocking them. We also see a similar picture in, in the Tower of Babel. Turn there, um, Genesis chapter 11. And we see this, uh, you know, we read over this and and sometimes we can miss this. And it's it's particularly interesting in the Hebrew, but nonetheless, um, Genesis 11, and they gather together on the the land of Shinar and they say in verse three come let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly and they had brick for stone they had tar for mortar and they said come let us build for ourselves a city and a tower whose top will reach into the heaven and let us make for ourselves a name lest we be scattered over the face of the whole earth and then verse five then Yahweh came down to see the city and the tower which the sons of men had built and these verbs are somewhat emphatic and intensified in the Hebrew. It's the the, the people are saying, we'll, we'll, "We'll build up, we'll build up, and it'll reach into heaven. it will be so high and so grand." And then God says, "I mean, come, what what is is this that little thing down there there?" He has to bend all the way down to see what they think is so great and so magnificent. And it's along the same lines. He's just mocking at their rebellion and everything they build and all their plans and everything. They they rail against him, whether they know it or not. He mocks them. He mocks them. And then verse 5, we see his fury. Then he speaks to them in his anger and terrifies them in his fury, saying, as for me, I have installed my king upon Zion, my holy mountain. Man in their rebellion, they either want to be king or they want to establish a king who will rule for them and will will, um, gather together and and, uh, uh, promote their rebellion against God, and he's furious with them he he speaks to them in his anger he shows his anger and this isn't so much um, as a response as if they're twisting his arm or they're changing God because God is eternal he's immutable he's unchangeable man cannot in a sense twist God's arm or in a sense um um, make him respond a certain way. He he, he does what he, he wills. Our God is in the heavens. He does whatever he pleases. But it shows that God is, in a sense, eternally and ever angry with sin and with sinners. He's furious with sin. He's furious with rebels. And he speaks to them, saying, speaking to them, you know, concerning his decrees, his plans, his word. Turn just, it's probably just a page over in the Psalter to Psalm 5. And, and there's this sense, we, we've heard um, this uh, phrase in Christian culture that God, um, that God hates the sin but loves the sinner. It's not true. God hates both. He hates both. He only loves those whom he set his love upon. Psalm 5, verse 5. The boastful shall not stand before your eyes. You hate all workers of iniquity or all sinners. You destroy those who speak falsehood. Yahweh abhors the man of bloodshed and deceit. He hates them. He not only hates sin, he hates the sinner who commits the sin. And then Psalm 7. In verse 12, if a man does not repent, he will sharpen his sword. He has bent his bow and prepared it. He has also prepared for himself deadly weapons. He makes his arrows fiery shafts. Behold, he travails with wickedness and and he conceives mischief and gives birth to falsehood. He has dug a pit and hollowed it out and has fallen into the hole which he made. His mischief will return upon his own head and his violence will descend upon his own skull. See in verse 12 of Psalm, uh, Psalm 7 that God is ready. He's ready to destroy the wicked. And then verse 14, uh, the wicked, in a sense, falls. He's so wicked he conceives mischief and gives birth to falsehood and he falls into his own pit. He destroys himself. In verse 11 of Psalm 7, God is a righteous judge and a God who has indignation every day. He's in, indignant with sin and sinners and rebels. He hates the sinner. He hates their, the workers of iniquity. He's furious with them. And he, he speaks to them in his anger and terrifies them in his fury saying, but as for me, I have installed my king upon Zion, my holy mountain. And that's his, his third response to the, the humanity's rebellion is his decree his decree in verse six that he has a king. He has decided who will come down and fix this, that his own son will, will stand upon Zion, upon the, his, his throne, the, the, the place that he has appointed for him to rule the nations and, and to rule them with a rod of iron, that he will fix this. He will put things in order. He will make things right. He will crush all the enemies and all the rebels of God. And so as we look at humanity's rebellion exposed and the Lord's response expressed, we we see a second lesson in the second stanza that we learn from this psalm is that God is in complete control. He's in complete control. Whatever the nations do, whatever is happening in the world, however dark it gets or however much evil spreads and however wicked man may grow to be, God is still in control and he laughs. It doesn't bother him because he knows the plan. He's made the plan. He will work the plan. He's, he's, uh, he's in a sense, installed his king upon Zion. You know, a couple years ago and, and even um, before that, as we were going through um, a lot of things that happened through the whole COVID thing and all the political um, incidents, uh, all the political things um, a couple years ago, um, there's a couple passages I would go for to, to just to be uh, comforted. And one, one such passage was Isaiah 40. And just reading through that over and over again, meditating upon God's sovereignty and his plan. And there in verse 15 of Isaiah 40, he says this as he's speaking to through Isaiah the prophet to his people as the people are in a sense um, being surrounded by the nations and, and the threat of Assyria taking them over is looming and then eventually um, Babylon would, would uh, take them over as well. Uh, we hear this in Isaiah 40 and, and verse 15. and uh, uh, God s- says to his people, Behold, the nations are like a drop from a bucket. And are counted as a speck of dust on the scales. Behold, he lifts up the coastlands like fine dust. Even Lebanon is not enough to burn, nor its beasts enough for a burnt offering. All the nations are as nothing before him. They are counted by him as non existence and utterly formless. saying the nations are, are, are like... A drop from a bucket. They're in, in comparison to a whole bucket of water, they're like a drop. And, and they're like a speck of dust on the scales. And in comparison to all the wheat or grain that you could pile up on a scale to weigh it and to sell it, they're like a speck of dust. They're nothing. God's in control. He's in complete control. Which brings us to the third uh lesson or the third scene we see in this psalm we see we've seen humanity's rebellion exposed the Lord's response expressed and now we see the Messiah's reign established I will surely tell the decree of Yahweh he said to me you are my son today I have begotten you ask of me and I will surely give the nations as your inheritance and the ends of the earth as your possession You shall break them with a rod of iron. You shall shatter them like a potter's vessel. We see the Messiah's reign established. That it is, in a sense, already established because of God's decree. And there's a sense also that he says, Today I have begotten you. That that would be taken not as if there was a point in time in eternity past in which... um, before that point he was not his son or that he was created at one sense but at one point in time but that he's eternally begotten him he's always been his son and there's always been this decree and this plan to install him as king It's just waiting until that perfect point in time in which it is manifested in the earth and so we see as, as, the, the, as uh, the psalmist speaks of the Messiah's reign established. And, and really what we get here in verses 7 and 9 is uh, Messiah himself speaking. As he says, I, sh- I will surely tell the decree of Yahweh. He said to me, you are my son. This is Jesus himself speaking right here through David. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will surely give the nations as your inheritance and the ends of the earth as your possession. It is Jesus, in, in, in a sense, is repeating the, the Father's decree concerning him back to the Father. And we see three things in this scene. We see uh, his position proclaimed. We see uh, his possessions procre- procured. And then we see his power pronounced. First, his position proclaim that he's begotten not made that that uh he um has always been king and he will rule turn with me to hebrews chapter one we see this uh, and and it's interesting that that we see this and all throughout the new testament and beginning in matthew we see matthew uh speaking about jesus as the king reigning as king and and speaking about his kingdom to come and then uh, several instances throughout the new testament about jesus as king as lord where we're called to submit to him as lord lord to bow the knee to confess him as lord and then here in the, the the writer to the hebrews he writes this letter to those who are being tempted to turn back from uh from the Messiah, from belief in Jesus as the Messiah and, and tempted to turn back to Old Testament Judaism and, and, and follow that sacrificial system. And so the writer to Hebrews, he, he uh, encourages them concerning the nature of Jesus. He says this, God, having spoken long ago to the fathers and the prophets in many portions and in many ways, In these last days spoke to us in his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the worlds, who is the radiance of his glory and the exact representation of his nature, and upholds all things by the word of his power, who, having accomplished cleansing for sin, sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become so much better than the angels, as he has inherited a more excellent name than they, For to which of the angels did he ever say, you are my son, today I have begotten you? Quoted from Psalm 2. And again, I will be a father to him and he shall be a son to me. And he goes on, uh, verse eight, he says, but of the son, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever and the scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated lawlessness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness above your companions. And you, Lord, in the beginning founded the earth, and the heavens are the works of your hands. They will perish, but you remain, and they all will wear out like a garment, and like a mantle, you will roll them up like a garment. They will also be changed, but you are the same, and your years will not come to an end. And then get this, verse 13. But to which of the angels has he ever said, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies as a footstool for your feet. His position is proclaimed here in Psalm 2 and then throughout many messianic psalms and then clarified even more in the New Testament and here in Hebrews chapter 1 and chapter 2. It's fixed, it's sure. It's just a matter of time. He is already sitting at the right hand of the father and there's a sense where he is uh, ruling spiritually speaking but there's also a sense that his kingdom is already and not yet and it's yet to be um, manifested in the earth but it's sure to come His, his, his return is imminent and his position is fixed it's proclaimed throughout the whole New Testament throughout the Psalms he is king he is lord and second, we see his possessions pro- procured. Verse 8: Ask of me, and I will surely give the nations as your inheritance, and the ends of the earth as your possession. He will possess all the nations. They will all come to him. They all bow down to him. They all pay homage. They will all worship the sun. And if they don't, he will break them with a rod of iron and he will dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. He, he, they will submit. Which is interesting, it, it shows um, one of the reasons why he could not be tempted with the nations in Matthew 4 by the devil. And it also shows uh, the, uh, um, the, uh, what sin does and, and idolatry does. Even at the level of the devil and at, at Satan, that it, it is kind of, why would he tempt the Lord with the nations when he knew right here it says he, the nations will be given to him. They're, they're in a sense, already his. It's just a matter of time. And Jesus knew that the nations were his and they they would soon be his. That's why he tells his disciples at the the Great Commission, Matthew 28, he, he says, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations. Go, this is a great commission that we are to go and and in a sense assault the kingdom of darkness with the gospel of Jesus Christ saying that he is Lord and that you are to submit to him, bow down to him, obey his gospel, repent and believe upon him, seek his mercy while you can before he breaks you with a rod of iron. The Dutch, great Dutch theologian and it's interesting about his life, um, Abraham Kuyper he was a, a theologian um, in the Dutch Reformed Church and, and he eventually became prime minister, served a term for prime minister. But he, 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 this is a famous quote of his and, and he's almost in a sense a speaking to um, the academy and to um, um, people in academia and scholars and he said, says this, No single piece of our mental world is to be hermetically sealed off from the rest. And there is not a square inch in the whole domain of our human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry, mine. He owns it all. It's all his. And if you don't see, in a sense, his rule manifested, it's just a matter of time until it is. He owns it all. He is Lord. And he will... um, Own the nations. He will gather his possessions. He will rule at a time which is appointed when he returns. Third, concerning the Messiah's reign established, we see his power pronounced. His power pronounced uh, 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 manifested or symbolized by a rod of iron. In the ancient Near East, uh, kings and, and even um, up until recently, kings had a, a scepter or a rod. And, and Jesus Christ is pictured here with a rod of iron, showing uh, that his, he has um, all power. He's all powerful. And it's repeated over and over again all throughout the New Testament, that he will break his enemies with a rod of iron. He will rule the nations with a rod of iron. No one could thwart his will or, or come up against him. No one could even challenge his power. It's quoted uh, several times in Revelations, Re- Revelation, uh, the book of Revelation in, in chapter 2 and chapter 12 and, and then uh, at the end in chapter 19. passages. As John is given this vision, the Apostle John of the end times, and he's on the Isle of Patmos... And he's speaking about, uh, in a sense, what Jesus is, He's relaying what Jesus is, is showing him, this vision directly from Jesus Christ concerning the end and concerning uh, what is happening, uh, what will happen with the churches and with the, all the nations in the end. And here in Revelations 2, and, and verse 26, he says this, And he who overcomes and he who keeps my deeds until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations." And he shall rule them with a rod of iron, as the vessels of the potter are broken to pieces, as also I have received authority from my father. Shattered. This picture of the potter's vessel being shattered, uh, um, this clay pot, um, the nations are pictured as a clay pot pot uh together in 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 one piece and then they're shattered so much so that that they can't be put back together you don't know where which piece goes with with which it's just completely ruined so also we see this term in revelation 12 uh, concerning the the um the people of god Revelation 12 and verse 5, She gave birth to a son, a male child, who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. And her child was caught up to God and to his throne, uh, picturing his ascension. But he is to return. He who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. He is coming back and that will happen here in Revelation 19 as as John is given this vision after the tribulation and he sees uh, the end when Jesus returns and he says, Then I saw heaven opened and behold a white horse and he who sits on it is called faithful and true and in righteousness he judges and wages war. His eyes are a flame of fire and on his head are many diadems. Having a name written on him which no one knows except himself, and being clothed with a garment dipped in blood. His name is also called the Word of God. And the armies which are in heaven, clothed in fine linen and white and clean, were following him on white horses. And from his mouth comes a sharp sword, so that with it he may strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. And he treads the winepress of the wrath of the rage of God, the Almighty. And he has on his garment and on his thigh a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. It's interesting that not only does mankind rebel against God in in, in the nations and in their sin and everything they do, but um, even in their view of Jesus, almost every caricature of Jesus and every image of Jesus is, it's altered in such a way that um, it, it, in a sense, um, makes him somewhat look puny and impotent, unlike what scripture paints him to be, that he is a terrifying, ruling, omnipotent uh, judge and king. And he will break the nations and all his enemies with a rod of iron. And so as we look at this psalm, which is pointing towards Jesus and and showing uh, what is happening in this sin-cursed world, we see humanity's rebellion exposed, the Lord's response expressed, the Messiah's reign established, and then fourth, humanity's repentance exhorted. But just in looking at the Messiah's reign, we, we learn that God has a plan. That's our third lesson, that we learn that God has a plan, a plan which is centered upon His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And that plan comes down to, to mankind. The, the, the main implication is that uh, man is to repent and to seek Him while He may be found, to call upon Him while He is near. It's interesting, uh, the one... Um, One uh, scholar, Old Testament scholar, uh, Dale Ralph Davis, he says this concerning Psalm 1 and Psalm 2. He says, uh, as these are paired together, he says, Psalm 1 says that you must know where you are going. The two ways and the two ends and the two peoples. He says, Psalm 2 says that you must know where history is going. And how the world is going. And it's ultimately centered around Christ and his reign. And that he will return to rule and reign in righteousness. He goes on to quote one of his friends. He says, uh, one of his friends told him, if I did not believe in Psalm 2, I think that I would lose it. I think that I would lose it. And, and that's probably one, one of the main points of application which we can gain as believers as we look around the world and we see the rebellion, we see the nations raging, we see the peoples plotting a vain thing, we see the kings of the earth taking their stand and the rulers taking counsel together against God and against his anointed, against Jesus Christ, and, and it's easy to, to be frustrated, to be angry, to be anxious, to be fearful, but the main point of application is to know that God has a plan and he's in control And this doesn't, it doesn't catch him off guard. And his plan is centered around his son. And the main point for all the nations is that he is returning. All the sinners, all the wicked, all the unbelievers, he will return and rule over them with a rod of iron. And so then the psalmist gets to his fourth point, his fourth scene, this Fourth voice, he says, So now, O king, show insight. Take warning, O judges of the earth. Serve Yahweh with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son, lest he become angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath may soon be kindled. How blessed are all who take refuge in him! We see this, this call to repent. This call to turn, this call to lay down your arms, lay down the rebellion, stop it, understand who you're rebelling against, uh, submit to him, serve him with fear and rejoice with tre- trembling. And not only that, but specifically, kiss the sun. Kiss the sun. This, this illustration here of, of kissing the sun in, in the ancient Near East. Um, and, and some of your translations would say do homage to the sun, Bow down to the sun. But this picture is a, it's a little bit more clearer with that term kiss the sun because this is the, the picture of in the ancient Near East when one king or one empire would conquer another and, and, and they would take that king and, and, and more often than not, they, they, they wanted to capture the king. They didn't want to so much kill the king because the, they, they wanted to conquer their enemy and capture that king and then, in a sense, humiliate that king before everybody else and make him bow down to the conquering king and actually kiss his feet. And this is a picture to all of rebellious mankind, all the rebellious nations, that they are to bow down and kiss the feet of the Lord Jesus Christ lest he become angry and you perish in the way. And so this uh, repentance, this call to repentance, we, we see it in three ways in its scope, its attitude and its actions. In its scope that is from the top down, starting with the, the kings and the judges of the earth and then it goes down to, to, uh, to uh, the attitude in which the repentance is to be displayed, how it's uh, to be uh, shown in fear, fearing God, rejoicing with trembling, and then in its actions of a humble submission to the Son, knowing that the Son will display His wrath. He says, lest He become angry and you perish in the way, for His wrath may soon be kindled. Also another False view of Jesus Christ is that he's just, you know, meek and mild, meek and lowly. There's there's no wrath. It's not what Scripture says. Scripture says that there is wrath, that Jesus is fully God. And as fully God, there is wrath for his enemies. See this most notably in Revelation 6 when, when it talks about. What's going to happen? And, and here we get a picture of, of what will happen to the kings and the judges of the earth who, who do not repent, who do not submit to God's authority. In Revelation 6 and verse 15, it says this, Then the kings of the earth and the great men and the commanders and the rich and the strong and every slave and free man hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains. And, and they said to the mountains and to the rocks, Fall on us! And hide us from the presence of him who sits on the throne. And get this. And from the wrath of the Lamb. From the wrath of the Lamb. From the wrath of Jesus Christ. For the great day of their wrath has come. And who is able to stand? Jesus has wrath stored up for his enemies. And it will soon be kindled. Psalm ends with this. Not only with the call to repentance, but this promise. How blessed are all who take refuge in him. And so the fourth and most important lesson we learn from Psalm 2 is that we need to obey the gospel. All of us. Uh, All mankind needs to obey the gospel. and, And we who have obeyed the gospel and know the gospel need to proclaim that gospel to others and call them to repent while there's time, to seek the Lord while he may be found, to call upon him while he is near, to let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts and let him return to the Lord and he will have compassion on him and to our God for he will abundantly pardon because God is in complete authority. He is sovereign. He is omnipotent. He is omniscient. He is also righteous and holy and he will judge his enemies in righteousness. He will break the, the, the nations with a rod of iron, but he's also merciful and gracious and slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love. And he demonstrates his love toward us and that while we are yet sinners, Christ died for us. And so there is mercy as well. Dr. Will Varner, he says this concerning the last verse of this psalm. He says, I call Psalm 2.12 the John 3.16 of the Old Testament. And that's, that's exactly what this psalm is. It speaks of Messiah from beginning to end. It speaks of the sinfulness of mankind. It speaks of the authority and the sovereignty and the omnipotence of God, of the Father. It also speaks of, of the Spirit calling, in a sense, people to repent. And it speaks of God's mercy. That how blessed are all who take refuge in him. That Though um, all of the world is is under condemnation, uh, for those who are not in Christ, they are under God's condemnation and they will experience his wrath if they don't repent. There is also this promise that for all who seek him and repent and believe upon him, they can be saved and they will be blessed. How blessed are all who take refuge refuge in him heavenly father we thank you for your word we thank you for your gospel we thank you for uh how this psalm was written out and, and, and hundreds of years before christ would would come to earth displaying his authority his rule displaying your plan for the nations and for the world and And your call to repent and to believe and also your mercy. Lord, for uh, those of us who have believed upon Christ and have trusted in him. Help us to remember this great gospel and to proclaim it to others. And for those who have yet to repent. Please show them the danger that they are in. Show them their own rebellion against you. Pierce their heart. Convict them and have mercy upon them by calling them to your son that they may seek refuge in him. It's in his name we pray.